This week's installment of Power Corrupts is slightly different. You're about to hear an audiobook excerpt, read by yours truly, from my new book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. The book answers a series of questions. Do worse people tend to get power? Does power tend to make people worse? Why are we drawn to giving power to bad people for bad reasons? And how can we fix it so that power draws in the best people and purifies rather than corrupts? These are the book's opening lines. Does power corrupt or are corrupt people drawn to power? Are entrepreneurs who embezzle and cops who kill the outgrowths of bad systems or are they just bad people? Are tyrants made or born? If you were thrust into a position of power, would new temptations to line your pockets or torture your enemies gnaw away at you until you gave in? It's food for thought, by the way. If you were suddenly made the dictator of Turkmenistan, how would you behave? What you're about to hear picks up part of the way through the first chapter of the book. And if you'd like to pick up a copy of Corruptible or the audiobook version, you can pre-order it now. And anyone who pre-orders the book or the audiobook gets exclusive access to an additional full episode of Power Corrupts. If you pre-order, just go to my website, brianpkloss.com, click on Corruptible in the top right corner, and fill out the form. If you do that, you'll get sent a link on November 9th, 2021 with the exclusive bonus episode of Power Corrupts. The book is out November 9th, 2021 in the US and January 6th, 2022 in the UK. I hope you enjoy this preview and thank you for listening. Everyone has heard the famous aphorism, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. It's widely believed. But is it true? A few years ago, I was in Madagascar, a sprawling red-earthed island off the coast of Africa. Everybody knows Madagascar for its lovable ring-tailed lemurs, but it's home to an equally interesting species, corrupt politicians. The island is largely governed by crooks who cash in as they rule over 30 million of the poorest people on the planet. Buy a latte and a muffin, and you've just spent a week's wages for the average person in Madagascar. To make matters worse, the rich often prey on the poor. And I was there to meet one of the richest men in Madagascar, the island's yogurt kingpin, Mark Ravalomanana. Ravalomanana grew up destitute. At the age of five, to help his family survive, he'd load up baskets with watercress and peddle them to passengers on a dilapidated train that passed by his school. One day, he caught an unexpected break. A neighbor gave him a bicycle. Young Mark started cycling to nearby farms to ask for excess milk, which he'd turn into homemade yogurt. As he built his fledgling business, he tried to give back to his struggling community. When he wasn't volunteering at the local church or singing in its choir, he hawked the yogurt off the back of that rickety bicycle, growing his business pot by pot and year by year. By the late 1990s, he'd become the island's dairy baron and one of Madagascar's richest men. In 2002, he became President Ravalomanana, a shrewd politician who understood the value of a rags-to-riches story in a country where just about everyone was still in rags. As president, he promised change. Initially, he delivered. His government invested in roads, cracked down on corruption, and rooted out poverty with sky-high economic growth. Madagascar became home to one of the fastest-growing economies in the world. It appeared to be a success story, an against-the-odds parable that good people from humble beginnings make wise, just rulers. I decided to pay Ravalomanana a visit. 
When I arrived at his palatial house, he walked out of the front door sporting a navy blue Nike tracksuit with a white stripe down the side. Beaming, he shook my hand and led me inside. He showed off his workout room where he'd been doing calisthenics since 5 a.m. It's the only way to keep your mind sharp enough to make important decisions, he told me. Then he pointed out his custom-made decorative shrine to Jesus, a sort of model train version of Bethlehem, with a large wooden cross overlooking the miniaturized town. We went upstairs, and at the end of the corridor, he threw open large mahogany double doors. An enormous table was behind them. Every inch was covered with food, piles of warm croissants, eggs prepared every possible way, five kinds of juices, and enough yogurt to feed his childhood village for a week. The days of poverty and watercress were long gone. Even though Ravalomanana's chief of staff joined us, only two places were set, one for him and one for me. I sat down, opened my notebook, and reached for my pen, only to realize I'd forgotten it. No problem, Ravalomanana said. We may be poor, but we have pens. He picked up a small bell next to his fork and shook it. Within seconds, two employees raced into the room, each hoping to be the first to the table. Pen, Ravalomanana barked. The two men hurried off. Both returned within 30 seconds, each clutching a brand new ballpoint, competing for praise. The slower man looked dejected when he didn't get it. That's when Ravalomanana got down to business. He was preparing to launch his bid to retake the presidency in the upcoming election. He looked intently at me. I saw from Google that you have experience advising campaigns, he said. Tell me, what should I do to win mine? The question caught me off guard. I was there to study him, not advise his campaign. But I wanted to establish rapport, so I improvised. Well, when I helped manage a campaign for governor back home in Minnesota, we came up with an effective sort of gimmick. We visited all 87 counties in 87 days to show that we cared about the whole state. There are 119 districts in Madagascar. Why don't you do 119 districts in 119 days? He nodded, signaling that I should continue. You could wrap it up with your rags-to-riches image. Just ride a bicycle through each town to remind people of your childhood selling yogurt while showing that you understand what it's like to be poor. He nodded, turned to his chief of staff, and said, Buy 119 bicycles. Ravalomanana was no stranger to winning elections with unusual tactics. He had no qualms breaking the rules, either. In 2006, he was favored to win re-election, but was unwilling to leave anything to chance. He rigged the election with a novel tactic, forcing his main opponent into exile and then blocking him from returning home to register his candidacy. Every time his rival tried to return to Madagascar, Ravalomanana picked up the phone and ordered all the airports on the island closed, causing the aircraft carrying his opponent to turn back. It worked. The rival wasn't allowed to register from abroad, so he was left off the ballot. Ravalomanana won in a landslide. In 2008, Ravalomanana, a man of humble beginnings, church choirs, and charity volunteering, got greedy. After six years in power, it seemed that something had changed inside him. In a country where the average person earned a few hundred dollars per year, he used $60 million of state funds to buy a presidential aircraft, somewhat ambitiously named Air Force Two. He tried to license the aircraft to himself rather than to Madagascar's government. Year after year in power, his corruption seemed to grow worse and worse. Eventually, it would prove his downfall. In 2009, an upstart radio DJ turned politician organized protests against President Ravalomanana. 
the former DJ took to the airwaves to egg on the peaceful protesters as they marched to the presidential palace. As they arrived, soldiers defending the yogurt kingpin opened fire. It was a bloodbath. Hundreds were shot. Dozens were killed. People were outraged. Not long after the blood was cleaned from the streets, Ravalo Manana was toppled in a coup d'etat, a military takeover that put the radio DJ in power. Perhaps the conventional wisdom is right. Power does corrupt. Ravalo Manana, the five-year-old, dreamed only of upgrading from watercress to yogurt. His business played by the rules. He wasn't violent. He helped others, not himself. Taking control of the island, it seems, somehow altered him. It made him worse. But perhaps it wasn't Ravalo Manana's fault. In the end, the DJ president may have become more corrupt than the dairy baron that he replaced. Maybe if you or I were suddenly made the president of a notoriously corrupt island, we would become corrupt ourselves. It would just be a matter of time. Sometimes, though, the conventional wisdom has got it all wrong. What if power doesn't make us better or worse? What if power just attracts certain kinds of people, and those people are precisely the ones who shouldn't be in charge? Maybe those who most want power are least suited to hold it. Perhaps those who crave power are corruptible. If you've ever read a pop psychology book or watched a documentary about prisons, odds are pretty high that you've heard of a notorious study that seemed to suggest that power does indeed corrupt. There's just one problem. Everything you think you know about that study is wrong. Late in the summer of 1971, Philip Zimbardo, a researcher at Stanford University, built a fake jail in the basement of the psychology department. He recruited 18 college students as participants in a quasi-scientific experiment aimed at determining whether social roles can transform the behavior of normal people beyond recognition. The hypothesis was simple. Human behavior is surprisingly chameleon-like. We match the role we have, or the uniform that we wear. To test whether that was true, Zimbardo randomly assigned nine of the volunteer participants to be guards. The other nine became prisoners. For $15 per day for two weeks, they were to live out an all-too-real criminal justice roleplay. What happened next is now infamous. The guards almost immediately began abusing the prisoners. They attacked them with fire extinguishers. They took away their mattresses and forced them to sleep on the concrete floor. They stripped their peers naked just to show who was boss. Power, it seemed, had made them awful. Deprived of control, the prisoners transformed from proud, outgoing college students into insular and submissive shadows of their former selves. In one harrowing moment, a guard who had already been abusive towards his fellow college students lined up the prisoners to humiliate them. In the future, you do work when you're told. Thank you, Mr. Correctional Officer, a prisoner replies. Say it again. Thank you, Mr. Correctional Officer. Say bless you, Mr. Correctional Officer. Bless you, Mr. Correctional Officer. The study was supposed to continue for two weeks, but when Zimbardo's girlfriend visited the fake jail and saw what was happening, she was horrified. She convinced him to shut down the experiment after six days. When the findings were published, it shocked the world. Documentaries were made, books were written, the evidence seemed clear. Demons are within all of us. Power just lets them come out. But there was a catch. The seemingly straightforward narrative of the Stanford prison experiment, which had become conventional wisdom in psychology, wasn't so clear-cut. 
only some of the guards were abusive. Several resisted and treated the student prisoners with respect. So even if power does corrupt, are some people more immune than others? Plus, a few prisoners and guards now say that they were just putting on a performance. They believed the researchers wanted to see a show, so they gave them one. A recently unearthed audio recording of the experiment's preliminary phase has raised questions about whether their participants were coached to be harsh toward prisoners, rather than spontaneously becoming nasty. So the picture is a bit murkier than we were led to believe. But even with those caveats, the experiment is harrowing. Ordinary people, if put in the right conditions, can become cruel and depraved. Are we just all sadists waiting to be unmasked once we get control over others? The answer, thankfully, is probably not. Zimbardo's conclusions didn't take into account a crucial aspect of the study, how the participants were recruited. To find prisoners and guards, researchers placed this ad in the local newspaper. Male college students needed for a psychological study of prison life, $15 per day for one to two weeks beginning August 14th. For further information and applications, contact. In 2007, researchers at Western Kentucky University noticed a small, seemingly insignificant detail about that ad. It made them wonder whether it had inadvertently skewed the study. To find out, they replicated that ad, only changing $15 to $70 to adjust for inflation since the 1970s. Every other word in the updated ad was identical. Then they created a new ad. It was the same in every way with one key difference. It replaced the line for a psychological study of prison life with the phrase for a psychological study. In some college towns, they placed the prison life advertisement. In others, they placed the psychological study ad. The idea was to have one group that volunteered for a prison experiment and another group that volunteered for a generic psychology study. Would there be any difference between the people who responded? Once the recruitment period closed, the researchers invited the prospective participants in for psychological screening and a thorough personality evaluation. What they found was extraordinary. Those who responded to the prison experiment advertisement scored significantly higher on measures of aggressiveness, authoritarianism, Machiavellianism, narcissism, and social dominance, and significantly lower on dispositional empathy and altruism compared to the generic study. Just by including the word prison in the advertisement, they ended up with a disproportionately sadistic batch of students. That finding could invert the conclusions of the Stanford Prison Experiment in ways that fundamentally transform our understanding of power. Instead of demonstrating that ordinary people thrust into power can become sadistic, it may demonstrate that sadistic people seek out power. Maybe we've had it backward. Maybe power is just a magnet for bad people, rather than a force that turns good people bad. In that formulation, power doesn't corrupt. It attracts. But there's still another mystery. Even if people ill-suited to power are drawn to it, why do they seem to attain it so easily? After all, in modern societies, a significant amount of control isn't taken, but given. CEOs don't engage in gladiator-style combat with mid-level managers to reach the corner office. Craven and corrupt politicians, at least in democracies, need to get ordinary people to support them to take charge. The recent revelations about the Stanford Prison Experiment raise the possibility that bad people are drawn to power. But what if we, as humans, are also somehow drawn to giving power to the wrong people for the wrong reasons?
In 2008, researchers in Switzerland conducted an experiment to test that hypothesis. They recruited 681 local children, all between the ages of 5 and 13. The kids were asked to play a computer simulation in which they had to make decisions about a ship that was about to embark on a voyage. Each child had to select a captain for their digital ship based on two faces that appeared on screen. No other information was given. This was designed to force the children to decide. Who looks like a good captain to you? Who appears as if he or she would make an effective leader of your imaginary ship? What the kids didn't know was that the two possible captains weren't a random assortment of people. Instead, they were politicians who had competed in recent French parliamentary elections. The pairs of faces were randomly assigned to the children, but each pair they saw contained the winner of an election and the runner-up. The results of the study were astonishing. 71% of the time, the children picked as their captain the candidate who'd won the election. When the researchers ran the same experiment with adults, the researchers were astonished to see nearly identical results. The findings were remarkable on two fronts. First, even children can accurately identify election winners based on faces alone, highlighting how superficial our assessments of leadership can be. Second, children and adults don't have radically dissimilar cognitive processing in picking people to be in charge. It gave fresh meaning to the phrase, taking someone at face value. As further evidence that our powers of leadership selection are flawed, several other studies have shown that those who are more aggressive or rude in group discussions are perceived as being more powerful and leader-like than those who are more cooperative or meek. Yes, this is already getting complicated. Power might corrupt good people, but it also might attract bad people. And maybe we, as humans, are somehow drawn to bad leaders for bad reasons. Unfortunately, the complexity is just beginning. There's another wrinkle to consider. What if people in power do bad things not because they're a bad person to begin with, and not because they turn bad after taking power, but because they're stuck in a bad system? That idea makes a lot of sense. After all, playing by the rules might get you promoted in Norway, while it guarantees that you'll never attain power in Uzbekistan. That helps explain why some people in positions of authority are genuinely wonderful, out to help others rather than helping themselves. The allure of power and the effects of being in charge may therefore depend on the context. Thankfully, contexts and systems can be changed. That provides a bit of good news. Perhaps we're not doomed to a world in which abusive Cornelius-style leadership is inevitable. Perhaps we can fix it. One study conducted in Bangalore, India, provides some evidence for that optimistic view. The researchers wanted to see what kinds of people were drawn toward government careers in a place where the public sector is known for graft and bribery. India's civil service provided a good testing ground, as it's infamous for rampant corruption. Everybody knows that becoming a government official in Bangalore provides opportunities to take home some off-the-books pay. In the experiment designed by two economists, hundreds of university students were asked to roll standard dice 42 times and record the results. As with all dice, it was just down to luck. Before they rolled the dice, however, the students were told that they'd be paid more if they had some good fortune and rolled higher numbers. More fours, fives, and sixes would lead to more cash. But because the results were self-reported, students could lie about their dice rolls. Many did. The number six was recorded 25% of the time, 
while the number one was recorded only 10% of the time. With statistical analysis, the researchers could be sure that such skewed results couldn't possibly have been due to chance. A few students were even so brazen as to claim that they rolled sixes no fewer than 42 times in a row. But there was a twist in the data. The students who cheated in the experiment had different career aspirations from those who reported scores honestly. Those who self-reported bogus high scores were much more likely than the average student to say that they aspired to join India's corrupt civil service. When another team of researchers ran a similar experiment in Denmark, a country where the civil service is clean and transparent, the results were inverted. Students who self-reported their scores honestly were far more likely to aspire to be civil servants, while those who lied were the students who sought other professions that could make them filthy rich. A corrupt system attracted corrupt students, and an honest system attracted honest students. Perhaps it's not about power changing people, but rather about the setting. A good system can create a virtuous circle of ethical power seekers. A bad system can create a vicious cycle of people willing to lie, cheat, and steal until they reach the top. If that's the case, then our focus shouldn't be on powerful individuals. It should be on repairing our broken systems. We're left with a series of possible solutions to our exasperatingly complex puzzles. First, power makes people worse. Power corrupts. Watercress becomes a yogurt empire. And before you know it, you're rigging elections and buying airplanes with money that isn't yours. Second, it's not that power corrupts, but rather that worse people are drawn to power. Power attracts the corruptible. The psychopathic pharmacists can't resist climbing a doomed ship's hierarchy, and the sadists can't resist the allure of slipping on a uniform or beating a prisoner with a baton. Third, the problem doesn't lie with the power holders or power seekers. It's that we are attracted to bad leaders for bad reasons, and so we tend to give them power. Our captains, and not just of imaginary ships, are selected for irrational reasons. When they crash us into rocky reefs, we only have ourselves to blame. And fourth, focusing on the individuals in power is a mistake, because it all depends on the system. Bad systems spit out bad leaders. Create the right context, and power can purify instead of corrupting. These hypotheses are potential explanations for two of the most fundamental questions about human society. Who gets power and how does it change us? Thank you.